We are finishing up the book of Jonah today. We finished actually working through the text last week, but this week we're going to try and wrap up the whole series. And it has been an amazing journey through such a small little book, right? Um, I, I have found myself, it was interesting, Chris was talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy and then the whole idea of our passions and our motivations. And that really has been where this book has struck me. I've been in ministry for a couple of decades or more and been a Christian for over 30 years. And it is so easy to go through the motions, isn't it? It's so easy to, to learn the right things to say or the right places to be or the, the religious stuff. It's just so easy to do that. But God is so interested in our hearts. So that's really what has struck me as we've gone through this book. And I hope that uh, we'll bring all of that to a close today. It's an ancient story, 2,700 years old. That's pretty amazing, but a timeless message. Hasn't it felt like we can relate to this as if it was written last year? It's very easy. It's very accessible to get at. The interesting thing about this book, and this is certainly true of all of scripture, but there's places where it the, the Bible seems to lend itself this way more than others. There's a, a phrase, progressive revelation. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's the idea that God speaks. He has spoken in history. And in the moment that he speaks, what he says has meaning and significance and purpose and all of that. But over time, what he says can sort of fill out and take on even greater meaning and significance. So God spoke to Jonah, right? That was just between him and Jonah. And he sent him, sent Jonah to speak to Nineveh. But the message of Jonah's life was meant to go to Israel, Old Testament Israel. So there's that dynamic going on there. But God preserved that message and it became an important message for first century Israel, like first hundred years AD. That was a different group of people, but an important message they needed to hear. And then of, of course with Jesus and then the death, burial and resurrection around his life, that added some significance to the message of Jonah. And then here we are, 2018. And we're, we're really trying to understand and apply the significance of Jonah's story and all that God was doing in him and through him here 2,000 years later. Though the prophet of this book was sent to a Gentile nation, God's intention was for all that happened with Jonah and the Ninevites to get back to Israel and for them to hear a message loud and clear. Let's just run over the book very quickly again, if you haven't been with us, just to make sure we got the flow. So God gives Jonah a message to take to the Gentile nation of Assyria, particularly the city of Nineveh. And uh, Jonah opts out, decides he's going to try and flee the presence of the Lord. But the pursuer, the hound of heaven, as Jeff uh, talked to us about, he pursued him and in spectacular fashion uh, captured Jonah and got his undivided attention. Uh, 
In the belly of the fish, Jonah pieces together a prayer of thanksgiving. Remember that? But we noticed that there was something conspicuously absent, and that was godly sorrow, we would call it. There wasn't a sense of him understanding what he had really done and how he ended up in the belly of the fish. Well, God delivers Jonah safely to shore, and then the God of second chances calls him again to go back to Nineveh. And this time, the prophet obediently goes. He declares the message, and then one of the most amazing revivals in all of human history takes place in these Gentile heathen people. They repent. They turn from their sin, and God relents from the wrath that he said he was going to pour out on that city. Now, you would think Jonah, as a prophet of God, would be ecstatic about that. But instead, he's enraged. He hates the fact that the Ninevites repented, and he hates even more that God actually extended to them grace and mercy. So what we see is there's something going on down deep in Jonah's heart that can't be perceived by outward obedience, because it's possible to obey and for our hearts to be in all the wrong places. That's what God is addressing. And he finishes this uh, brief story with an object lesson to help his angry prophet recognize how far his self-righteous heart is separated from the compassionate heart of Almighty God. That's Jonah in a nutshell. And as we said at the beginning of this series, the book of Jonah begins and ends with God's love for people who don't love God. And everybody in the book's included there, right? We, we love because he first loved us. God always goes first. He did it in this book. He did it with Christ. He does it today. Now, like Jonah... The people of his day had lost sight of why they were a nation to begin with. With the person of Abraham, so in Old Testament history, God chooses this guy named Abraham, not for anything that he had done. He just picks him out. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna make of you a great nation, but here's why. Genesis 12, two and three. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. That's the part they had forgotten. That's the thing that they had lost sight of. God said, I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth, not just Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God preserves this story, Jonah's story, in Old Testament scripture as a perpetual reminder to those people of why they existed and what God wanted to do through them. Jesus referred to this little story in confronting the Israelites of his day, and he referred to something called the sign of Jonah. 
So let's look at that for just a moment because that was pretty significant. Again, this is the progressive revelation. I think when Jonah recorded his book and put it out to his people, I don't know that he understood that what he experienced in the fish was gonna have any more significance than his watery time out. But here Jesus shows us that uh, God had bigger intentions for that moment in his life. The leaders that were around Jesus were no more receptive than the leaders of Israel back in Jonah's day. Like Jonah was with God, the leaders around Jesus were greatly offended by what he did, particularly with the Gentiles around him. They were repulsed by how he loved the unlovely. They were repulsed by how he lavished grace on the least of those who lived within his city. They mocked his reputation as being a friend of sinners. They treated God's blessing as if it existed for them alone. You know, that's a place where we can probably relate a little bit, right? Where we begin to think about God's blessing as sort of our possession, not something that kind of goes through us to others. Leaders argued with Jesus regularly. They sought to publicly discredit him. They accused him of blasphemy and they attempted to catch him in religious contradictions related to the laws that they had actually written. They schemed about ways to take him down, but they failed again and again. And they became enraged just like Jonah. They just couldn't get over the fact that this guy who claims to be God isn't playing by their rules. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that kind of what Jonah was all upset about was God wasn't playing by his rules. He wasn't doing what Jonah expected him to do. And those leaders around Jesus, they thought the very same thing. And here we are in 2018 and we have to ask and answer the question, what do we do when God doesn't do what we expect? How do we respond to that? Where do we go? Well, back to this uh, sign of Jonah. This is how God confronted through Jesus this anger, this rage that was uh, seething in these leaders. This is in Matthew 12. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So their, their heart isn't to believe in anything. They don't believe in Jesus. They just wanna try and take him down. And so they ask for a sign. Now the context here in, in Matthew 12 is Jesus establishing himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, essentially equating himself with God. And he's basically saying, I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. I'm gonna do it for the goodness of the people around me. And it really doesn't matter whether or not you're okay with that. I'm gonna be God. Interesting, he heals, he serves, he encourages and they accuse him of being empowered by Satan. 
And so it's very obvious that they, <laughs> that they are just out to lunch. And he uh, answers them in their request for a sign. He says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So that's where we have this reference to this book that we've been studying. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, it's a prophecy uttered by Jesus, which would be miraculously fulfilled in his death, burial, and resurrection. So once again, there was this miracle in a fish related to the prophet that was all about getting him to where he needed to be, to obey the call of God. But now that very same moment takes on greater significance because it anticipates the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior. It verifies the reality of our Messiah, who he is, what he's done, and it's an invitation. Jesus ex explains in verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, this is interesting. In verse 41, he says, the men of Nineveh, that the people that... Jonah went and spoke to, they're going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, which you remember, it was probably the shortest sermon ever. <laughs> Turn from your ways or God's gonna blow this city to smithereens. And they repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Saying to these religious leaders, Pagan Gentiles, the most wicked on earth, turned just at the mention of God's wrath. And you've had Jesus walking among you, doing miracles, offering eternal life, abundant life, forgiveness, restoration, redemption, and you will not turn. The people of Nineveh, they're going to condemn you because you had so much and did so little with it. Now, signs, they offer direction. Think, I mean, think very concretely here with me. You're driving down the road. A sign will give you direction. It can provide warning. It can even be reassuring. Have you ever been in a city where you're driving around and you don't know where you're going and you see a sign with a familiar uh, street name on it and you go, okay, I know where I am now. I know where I'm supposed to be going. That's what signs do. And this is no different. Signs reveal what would be otherwise overlooked. So specifically, the sign of Jonah points to the reality that God is compassionate to the core and he has gone to great lengths to show pity where it's needed. Jonah didn't get that in the context of the story. I think he got it later, and that's why we have the story. But certainly that sign points us to the same place today. This book is a cautionary tale, or you could say a cautionary sign. Its, its readers are really allowed to see what life is like on the run from God. And, and it invites us. See, we read this book and, 
you know, we could have gone anywhere in the Bible, but we end up in Jonah and it begs us to ask the question, are you and I on the run from God? Now, let's look at what we saw in Jonah's life and we may or may not identify with all of these things, but we might. This might be a great opportunity to, to see what we haven't seen before. We found the prophet isolated. Remember, he runs from his people in Israel. He runs from the presence of God and he runs from his calling as a prophet. He's going into isolation. That's what life on the run from God is like. It's isolating. It's apathy. Remember the descent into indifference? Remember all kinds of crazy stuff, storms and everything else is going on around him? And uh, Jonah's asleep. He's detached from reality. That's what life is like on the run from God. There's discipline. Now, Hebrews tells us the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He must have loved Jonah like crazy. I like what Timothy Keller says about sin and circumstances. He says this, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin. Sometimes it's just you live in a broken world, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. All sin has a mighty storm attached to it. See, when we're on the run from God, we open ourselves up to difficulty that isn't the result of just living in a broken world, but we're contributing to it. Discipline is a part of living life on the run from God. Compulsion, obligatory obedience. It's complying on the outside while being unruly on the inside. And when you're on the run, that's what you do to kind of keep up appearances. Discontentment. I mentioned earlier for Jonah, there should have been incredible joy that this heathen city would come to God and yet it was the complete opposite. He was angry. There's an absence of joy in his life. And I can tell you, if you are on the run from God, there is no way that you can experience joy in that place. If you're a believer, there's just no way because that's the only place real joy is found in intimacy with him. Finally, and this is the most sobering, is malevolence. It's defined as smoldering ill will. I thought that was a great description. Do you remember Jonah? There's a great picture there sitting outside of the city, just burning. And what he wants more than anything else is for those people to burn. That's where you get when you're on the run from God. You, you lose your affection for your fellow man and you begin to wish for their demise. Now, that sounded pretty dramatic, I understand. 
And your first impulse, my first impulse might be, well, I'm not on the run. I'm not a prophet. I didn't disobey God. He didn't tell me to go somewhere and I went somewhere else. I'm a good, moral, upstanding Christian. I'm, I religiously go to church. I'm a faithful spouse, parent, friend. I'm a hard worker on the job. I don't cuss, I don't get drunk, I don't watch porn, I don't eat too much. It totally misses the point of this book. Because here's the deal. Jonah was as upstanding as anybody in this room. He was a prophet, righteous to the core, outwardly. The problem was his heart. And here's what God did in Jonah's life. It's just, it blows my mind. He knew how to get down to that place that Jonah couldn't cover. He says, you know, I know you'll walk around the streets of Israel. <laughs> I know you'll preach my word all day long to all your friends, all your neighbors. I'm gonna send you to Nineveh. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna see your heart for where it really is. God asked him to love in a way that was foreign to his heart. God asked him to love in a way that he couldn't manufacture on his own. And he hated it. He didn't want to love that way. And so I think there's probably ways for us where we don't want to love that way. Let, let me draw a connection here for you. God told Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. These people that he hated. So the equivalent to that, I'm gonna suggest today, can be found in Luke 6. And that is, love your enemies. That's a command, by the way. Jesus told you, Jesus told me, to love my enemies. I wanna work through this passage quickly, but carefully. And I think we might find ourselves feeling that temptation to run. Listen to these words, these are sobering. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do you guys feel like running? This is so counterintuitive. It's so scandalous. But isn't that what grace is like? That we would give to others what they don't deserve because that's how we would like to be treated? Loving enemies is especially demanding because it requires unnatural faith in a merciful God. That, that's where Jesus goes next. So he lays down this incredibly demanding command. 
And then he says, now, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? His argument here is, look, the people of this world, they love people who love them all the time. That's as natural as breathing. They do good to those who do good to them. See, it's just this agreement. We're nice to each other as long as we're nice to each other. But what happens when somebody comes after you? What happens when you get tweaked on Facebook? What happens when somebody just gives you that look as you pass through the hallway? What happens when someone maligns your name? That's when loving is hard. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. Probably not in that moment, but there's something bigger than that moment. He says, you will be sons of the most high. Why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And lest we think that's all of those other people out there, <laughs> he's kind to me. I'm the ungrateful one. I'm the evil one. I'm the one who is an enemy of God apart from his love for me. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. And Jesus would say there's no better way to live. That's a hard way to live, but it's a better way to live than life on the run from God. Now, Jonah didn't buy it. He thought his way was a better way. And it devastated his life. I mean, we just went through all of those characteristics that we saw in his story. Is, is that the kind of life that you want? Like, do you want Jonah's life? Or do you want a life that is just abandoned to the mercy of God? Where you just say to him, Use me as you please. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to uh, kind of do my own thing. I'm gonna let you be God. At the core, our lack of love reveals a lack of humility. And that was one of Jonah's greatest struggles. One of our greatest barriers to loving like God is a lack of awareness of how desperately we ourselves need to be loved. And, and that just isn't a one-time thing. Like, I need to be loved as much today as ever. I need my God to love me. And that's not just an emotional thing. I need him to do all in me that love does to make me as he intends. Self-righteousness, self-pity, contempt, those are horrific enemies of the gospel, of the good news that God loves you. <laughs> those stand in the way. So whether it's Jonah or Israel or us, we hinder our ability to love in the radical ways of God when we fail to see God's radical love for us how desperately we need it.
Now, he ends this little passage in talk, like ushering this command to love in a very radical way. He asks the question, Jesus asks the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And once again, it, it's, it's not so much a reprimand as much as it is an invitation to discover. It's like, okay, let's just assume that you don't do what Jesus tells you to do, like loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you and blessing those who curse you. Let's just say that you don't do that. Why? Like, what is it? It may be something about the way you see God. It may be something about the way you see you. It may be something about the way you see the world around you. But there's a reason. And I know that God would be glad to show you that and then to love you in such a way as to change that about you so that you would do as he commanded and have the life that comes with it. Here's some good words after that searching question. Everyone who comes to me, Jesus says, and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. See, this book is asking us again and again, what kind of life do you want? Do you want the independence, the perceived independence of life on the run from God, doing your own thing, doing it your own way? Or do you want to do it God's way, which is the way of love, which is very hard at times, but incredibly fulfilling. And that kind of life, it doesn't get shaken. Again, doesn't mean it's not hard. It just means that there's some stability there. There's some perseverance there. And there's some fruitfulness there. If you have come to Christ and heard his word and your heart is to obey, I think there's some encouraging things to take away from the book of Jonah. I want to list those quickly in conclusion. We've said this actually several times throughout the series, but God is sovereign. Now, I want to caution you from making that mean something more than you really understand. There's a lot of people who talk about sovereignty as if it's just, you know, the sky is blue and the grass is green and God is sovereign. And I know exactly what that means. Here's what's important for us to know. God is going to do whatever he wants, however he wants to do it. That is his prerogative as God, and it will always be good and perfectly consistent with his character. And so there's tremendous freedom in that for us, because I don't have to be God, and neither do you. 
We just have to be faithful to what he told us to do. And then we can say, God, you're sovereign. Whatever happens, I know that it isn't outside of your control. And I know that you're going to bring those circumstances, whatever they are, to the perfect conclusion. So I can trust in that. I can breathe in that. I can rest in that. So I think that's a big takeaway here. We saw again and again, God controlling the world <laughs> uh, around Jonah. And so God is sovereign. Secondly, God doesn't need us to accomplish his redemptive purposes, but he wants to use us to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He's really not wringing his hands up there hoping that you get it right so that his plan can be accomplished. There is nothing that we can do to thwart the will of God. But when we choose to go our own way, to be on the run from God, it's our loss. See, we don't set God back. We just miss out. And even as we talk about going outward with a mission and being on mission as a church and reaching the world for Christ, that isn't just some kind of battle cry to get you all riled up and active to, to do something that matters. It's like, that's where life is found. And when you and I don't give ourselves to that, we lose, we miss out. We have life less than God intended. Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his, and he's inviting us to play along, to be a part of that. Next, God's word comes to humanity with expectation, freedom, responsibility, and consequence. Just, we'll just make it real simple. Your choices matter. We have an upcoming series called Outward with the Mission. And we're gonna be talking over the next eight weeks about how do we bring the gospel in very real and winsome ways to the world around us, beginning with our city and beyond. And so all of the choices that we make around that, like there's great freedom. Nobody's gonna strong arm you. Nobody's gonna guilt trip you or do any of that. You're just gonna be invited to be a part of this amazing mission that God's given his people. Great freedom, great responsibility, and great consequence. Last thought that I took away from this study is our response to the missional assignment God has given us reveals our gratitude for God's grace toward us and our grasp of God's heart for the world. So that might even be a place for us to pray that God would grow us. Lord, I wanna have a greater amount of gratitude for the work you've done in my life, which will require me to think about my life, think about my story, think about how you've been involved. But also, I want to better grasp the heart that you have for the world that we have seen in this book and the rest of the pages of scripture. So let's ask the question, so what? I hope this has been a, a helpful review. I hope that there were some things that reminded you of a takeaway maybe that God had specifically for you as we've studied this book. I will say it's very important for you to share 
what you're learning with somebody else, whether that's a friend or a spouse, whatever, just give that away. That will help it stick for you. But just pray for a moment. What is it about Jonah's story that we have been studying for these uh, few weeks that really stands out as kind of pointing you toward a next right step with God? Pray about that for just a moment.